0: Well, hello, listeners. Welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 330 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've likely noticed that when it comes to discussing eco-friendly behaviors, we often, on this show, center our activities, center the ideas around what we can do within our own homes, what we have control over within our own respective spheres. And on today's show, I am super excited to bring on two guests who are going to help us take our efforts that we have been solidifying in our own homes and take our efforts outside of the home. What can we do within our own communities that are going to make a significant impact? What, in their words, will have some zeros behind the impact? That's what we're discussing today. Today, I am speaking with Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis. Hal is an energy policy advisor, and Justin is an award-winning New York Times reporter. They together co-authored the new book, The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps, to save our planet. And be sure to stick around until the end of the episode because I have an action step where those of us who are invigorated after listening, which I'm sure most of you will be, if you're invigorated after listening, be sure to listen to the outro because I have some ideas as to how we can best act as a community moving forward. Hal and Justin, so excited to talk to you. Let's start with a really easy breezy question, not hard at all. Is it too late? Time is not on our side. You write in the big fix that to stop the scorching of the earth, we need to bring emissions of carbon dioxide to pretty close to zero by 2050. Hal, I'll give this first question to you. Is it already too late?
1: In some sense, the answer is yes. Unfortunately, it's too late to avoid significant damages. We have dragged our feet on this problem for really 30 years now since the scientists first began to warn us that we were in pretty serious trouble. And damages are going to happen. They are going to be, they're already happening, right? They're going to be pretty severe for human society. If we continue on our current course, we are going to make it much, much worse. And so, It's not too late to avoid a lot of the worst case scenarios. For example, we may still be able to avoid melting the majority of the Greenland ice sheet, which would raise sea level by 20 or 25 feet. So we're in a situation where the rallying cry, unfortunately, it's not exactly to the Bastille, but the rallying cry is limit further damage. You know, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to deliver as a collectively, we're trying to deliver the best human future we we can. And people have got to wrap their minds around that, right? That there is no glorious outcome here with rainbows and unicorns, but there are much better and much worse outcomes still within our grasp.
0: Justin, your answer there is interesting to me because you mentioned getting people's heads around the fact that it could be much worse. I would say that depending on how you look at the problem, we're not even at that step yet. We're still trying to get people on board with the scientific reality that climate change is real. And so in your book, you argue, both of you, that we need to stop thinking of ourselves as green consumers, and instead we need to think of ourselves as green citizens. Hal, what does this mean?
2: So the only way to solve the climate change problem is to retrofit huge swaths of the economy. We have to make utilities, power electric utilities, powered by wind and sun and other renewables. We have to convert the car fleet to electricity and drive fewer miles. We need to have houses run on heat pumps and we need to reinvent a lot of industries. If you don't change the physical stuff in the economy, you're not in the game. So that has to be grappled with. All of this requires smart public policy. It's not a huge number of policies. It's policies, however, with huge implications. And that in turn requires citizens to show up. So they need to understand who makes the decision, when and where do they make them and how to influence them. And if you do that homework, it empowers you dramatically. That's the green citizen. It's one who knows when and how and why to intervene in a decision and have an impact.
0: Well, that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in interviewing you both, because my listeners consider themselves environmentalists, but even with that consideration, even with that lifestyle of less over more, of putting the planet first, I think there's a real confusion out there about what exactly you and I and normal everyday citizens can do. You mentioned retrofitting huge parts of the economy and system change and smart public policy. And that all sounds good and fancy, but it also sounds largely out of reach for normal people who are concerned like me.
2: If I could just add a sentence or two. It's great to eat lower on the food chain. It's great to not drive a huge SUV all over the place. There's a lot of things we do that are really important and that create a sense of custodianship of the earth, but also go to the building department and demand that they have a building code that's as efficient as the one in California. Also go to the school board and say, why don't you stop buying these disgusting diesel buses, harming the kids' lungs and harming our planet? So it means taking your action one step further into the public realm. And it's not just a write your congressman sort of an answer. It requires some sophistication about which decisions matter, who makes those decisions, and how can I influence them. That's when it gets exciting.
0: So exciting. (laughs) So what I hear you saying there is that we need to take the actions that we're doing within our homes, and we need to take that zeal outside of the home, and one of the big takeaways that I had from your book was the importance of organizing ourselves, right, getting together, joining groups with like minded citizens, lobbying for what we want to see more of. But I'm wondering, is the political will of the masses enough? The fossil fuels industry has immense political clout and also a lot of awful lot of money, so it seems like a David and Goliath situation. So what do you have to say to that? Justin, we'll go to you.
1: This is the reason we wrote the book. It's true that right now the citizen voice is overmatched by the power of the incumbent interests. That's why we need more citizen voices in this problem, working on it. There's an estimate that during the American Civil Rights Movement, no more than about 1% of the population ever went out and marched in the streets, right, In, in that movement. And yet it was a powerful movement that sort of captured the imagination of American society and led to really dramatic legal and, and change on the ground. And here you have a situation where there is now a political demand for change. Uh, it's been growing. It's much bigger right now in the United States than it was, say, 10 years ago, but it's still not big enough. You know, the American system is almost built for paralysis, right? The way the Senate is, the over-representation of rural interests, the the Congress itself is just, it's a body stuck in jello at all times. And so, you know, that's why we need a really strong citizen movement focused on the right goals. And sort of tie this point back to your earlier point, to some extent, it's natural for people to look at the situation. Hal and I have both heard people say a million times, this problem is so large and I feel so small. It feels like there's nothing I can do about it. And, uh, you know, it is is a very large problem. And individually, there is not much that that any of us can do about it. I think people react to that imbalance basically by saying, at least I'll control what's within my direct control, right? I'll eat better. I'll eat lower on the food chain. I'll try to live more lightly on the earth. I'll drive a smaller car, not a bigger car. Those are all very good things to do. We're in favor of all those. We think they are the sort of gateway drug, if you will, to political engagement, but it's not enough. We need people's voices involved in our politics. And as Hal was complying, that doesn't always mean Washington. It doesn't always mean that you're trying to alter the Congress. God knows that's not easily done, right? A lot of these decisions, many of the most important decisions are made at the state level. They're made at the local level. Somebody in your town is deciding, probably in January, to once again buy gasoline cars for their fleet, their municipal fleet, instead of buying electric cars. Somebody in your town is deciding not to build, you know, electric car chargers on the public rights way and so on. So it's really not complicated. We need to go get in the faces of people who are making these decisions and grab them by the lapels and shake them and rattle them out of their lethargy and say, we are in a hurry here. You need to move.
0: One real tangible uh, action step that I received from your book was to... Check and see, first of all, whether your town or city is up to date on their building codes. I happen to be part of my town's environmental group. I'm on their mailing list. I do know that a big win recently at our latest town council meeting was we got our town's council to first declare a council emergency and then hire a sustainability manager full-time for the town to ensure that the town as a whole is doing everything it can. But that's a real tangible takeaway, I would say, for listeners who you know, don't even know what their town, their little place on this planet is doing. First of all, see if you have some sort of environmental group. And if you do, sign up for the newsletter, get on the mailing list. But what else can we do? So if the problem is there's too much carbon in the atmosphere and the solution is to remove some and or halt the continued pushing out of carbon into the atmosphere. I'm wondering, beyond voting, beyond making our voices clear, like, what can we do right now? I'm going to give that to you, Hal.
2: It's a great question. One of the things the book talks about is livable cities or livable towns. When Americans vacation, they often go to Europe because there are walkable streets and nice little corners and places, outdoor places for cafes. It baffles me that we don't do this at home. But there's a couple trends that are quite interesting to me. One is there's more and more money available for putting in protected bike paths. And the iron law of transportation is if you build it, they will come. If you make bicycling safe and segregated from cars, people ride bikes. Then you add in the advent of electric bikes, electric assist bikes which means you can throw your kids in there, you can buy groceries, you can do some work. You can extend without extending your personal energy, you can extend your range by a factor of three easily. So come up with a bike master plan for your town. Push it, get it through, bring kids along. Show how to make it safe. It's tangible, it's in your face. And what happens with these kinds of improvements is they're self-reinforcing. If you have a successful bicycle network that's 10 kilometers long, The next 10 is going to be easier to get as a rule because a constituency will arise that uses these bike paths same goes for when in during the pandemic they used parking spaces for restaurant extensions don't let those go away those are precious they change the character of the city you want to devote that much space for two cars to park or to have a whole vibrant restaurant so i would say create a local public expression of these values a tangible one that delivers real results and again. Try to get things to snowball once you've done that.
1: Yeah, another another answer to that question is despite this prevalence of green consumerism, there are things close to home that A lot of people aren't doing yet or aren't even imagining doing. I wonder how many of your listeners still have gas in their homes as their main source of heat, right? How many of them are cooking on gas stoves? We have alternatives now. The big alternative on gas stoves is induction cooking, which is superior in every way. And a lot of people need to be thinking about how am I going to get gas out? We have to get gas out of our houses on a sort of 20-year window here, even less if we can And the next time the furnace goes bad, people need to be thinking hard about not replacing it with a gas furnace, but rather replacing it with a heat pump that runs on electricity. So, even within this realm of sort of consumer decision making, there's a lot of stuff that people can actually do that is pretty pressing and that isn't on people's radar yet, you know?
0: Okay, so both of you made great points, and I want to touch on both of them. I know we're talking a lot about what we can do outside of our homes, but Justin, you made a great point there about transitioning away from especially oil, right? In the book, you suggested getting rid of your fuel oil furnace and installing a heat pump that's a big bang for your buck action. But what does that entail? For me personally, who still has the oil furnace, that sounds daunting to say the least. So what does that look like?
1: If you're burning oil for your heat, then you would save money by going to a heat pump. And some people in very cold climates might need this in Massachusetts. Some people keep the old system and add a heat pump on top of it. And so then the heat pump carries your heating load in the shoulder seasons and through most of the winter. But you've got that sort of backup of an oil furnace. But burning oil right now is really expensive. Getting your heat from electricity from a heat pump, not from, careful here, not from resistance heat. Heat pumps are way, way more efficient than resistance heaters. And it is nodding in the sense that yeah, you've got to call somebody, you've got to have it spec'd, you've got to make a decision about exactly how to do it. You've got to have it installed. And it's gonna cost you some money up front. Now there's a big development here, which is that Congress has passed as part of this recent legislation, they've passed a major tax credit for heat pumps and repairs like this. And how I don't do you know the amount of the tax credit off the top of your head? It's thousands, right? If you get a heat pump installed, you get a Tax credit for thousands of dollars, so that's going to change the economics somewhat, and it means that the payback on doing that will be faster. But we are talking the savings on fuel will pay you back over time for the improvement that you made. But nevertheless, of course, it's true that people need you need decent credit to be able to do that, right? And uh, then let the savings pay back the loan of installing the heat pump. Yeah, this is not you know cost free or pain free. These are big changes that we need to make in our whole economy.
2: Well, since you mentioned the town council could say, we're going to permit heat pumps in a four-day window at zero cost if you bring in a clean application. That would cost them nothing to do. They might offer to have an expert on call who would go around and look at different people's houses and say, this one's easy, this one's hard. Here's the changes you need to make. It's the transaction friction that's often the problem rather than the out-and-out out costs. But ask the local bank to finance the heat pump so that there's no cash out the door and they'll pay it back through savings over a five-year period or seven-year period. So understanding this has to happen, understanding there's a huge health benefit, there's a side benefit. There are studies now that show that the indoor air quality in most gas houses is worse than the refinery gate air quality. It's a significant driver of cancer now. So the benefits of switching are great. Let's not have 100 obstacles. I know when I put an electric vehicle charging station into my house, it took a lot of permits, a lot of time with the local officials, um, a lot of extra costs. The soft cost definitely ex- exceeded the hard cost for that charging station. That's no way to reform an economy or reshape an economy.
0: So we all have a finite amount of time and energy. And so how can we best use that time and energy to push for change. One of you, I'm sorry, my apologies. I don't remember which one of you mentioned it. I think it was you, Hal, about the dirty diesel school buses. My daughters ride to school on a dirty diesel burning school bus. What can I do as a parent to push for my town to switch to electric buses? And I'm using this as an example because a lot of my listeners are Concerned moms.
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I'm going to answer it generally and then specifically. The general one is to choose a target that's meaningful to you, but also meaningful to the planet. And that's not just, it's got to be something with some zeros behind it. Your school bus is a good example of that, turning it to electric vehicles or building code. But choose one and then get to know the territory. Understand the venue you're trying to change. Who controls it? Is it a monopoly? Is it a corporation? Is it a forward-thinking utilities commission or a backwards-thinking utilities commission? Get to know the field on which this will play out. Do some homework. It starts off as a fairly daunting task, but it triangulates pretty quickly. And if you have a partner or two to make it fun, to help you with it, it makes a big difference as well. Take a particular example, switching from diesel school buses. To electric ones. The first thing you're going to do is some homework and find out just how dangerous the air quality is to your own kids. And then write up a very carefully done fact sheet, not histrionical, backed by science, and share it with parents. All the parents say, We're poisoning our kids. Is this OK? At the same time, I would go to a EV bus dealer and say, What are your hints for helping me finance this transition? It's going to cost $50,000 extra per bus. We're going to earn that money back in seven years. How can I structure a loan or a school bond to pay for that? But ease the pain. Think think about some of the ancillary conditions. Where's your charging station for all these buses every night? And so forth. Think about the side benefits besides air quality and climate change. It's all of a sudden quieter on every bus ride. There's a lot of homeowners that would love that. Do some homework about the cost of inaction, the benefits of action. Who decides? And then use all that material to build your campaign. And by campaign, I don't mean an electoral campaign so much as a activism campaign get 25 of your moms or your moms and your dads ideally to go to the school board meeting and have them stand up one by one and say i'm tired of poisoning my kids why don't we switch to electric buses and do it with a little bit of a little bit of knowledge a little bit of armor it there's 12 other school districts in our state that have done this why are we behind Use comparative choices as an advantage It will be so gratifying to do something that has system change attached to it, that organizes people and focuses their
1: energy. A lot of parents are just not thinking of school boards as a venue for climate action. That is a failure of imagination. It's a failure to see what decisions are being made and where they're being made. We already have examples of school boards that have made the decision to switch to electric buses. This problem of how to finance it, how to finance the charging Infrastructure and all that, it's a real problem because we're talking three times as much money up front in some cases as for the diesel buses. But that problem has been solved. In fact, it's been solved by a guy there in Boston who founded a company that is financing around the country these this transition for school boards. And the way he does that, it costs money up front, but then the long run operating cost of the electric buses is so much lower that there's actually value there to be captured just on straight up economic grounds, you know, putting aside the health benefits and the climate benefits of the cleaner school buses. So my point is, this has already been done. People can look at the example of Montgomery County, Maryland, which has already ordered 200 electric school buses and is on the way to 600. They're going to, that's one of the biggest school districts in the country, and they're going to completely replace all their buses with electric buses. So. The critical part is going to the school board and saying, we demand it. That's the step that you need to take and be polite first. Don't start marching until you have to. But if they ignore you, if they say it can't be done, that's when you get aggressive and say, look, we know it can be done because other people are doing it. Here are examples. Get off your behinds and do it. And there's just no question. And by the way, the prices of of the buses are coming down fairly rapidly. It makes sense for people to buy a few and experiment with it and, You know What really school boards are doing right now is coming up with a plan for the transition over, let's say, a five-year window or something like that, but it can be done.
0: Okay. You guys are lighting a fire in me, and I'm sure you're lighting a fire in my listeners. The fire has been so strong in me that I forgot to take an ad break. So we're going to take that ad break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask you both, how do you decide... What problem, and there are so many problems, what problem should we focus on? We're going to get there after a quick word from our sponsors. Nothing nurtures the world above better than the soil below, and that's why I am so excited to introduce you to Coast of Maine. Coast of Maine is an organic soil brand that offers a full range of products designed to cover all of your garden and lawn needs. Coast of Maine believes in nurturing relationships with local retailers, so next time you're at your local retailer, look for Coast of Maine products. Get growing. Visit coastofmaine.com to find a local retailer near you, coastofmaine.com. If you've been paying attention, you've likely heard something about gut health and why zoning in on your gut health is so darn important. And we're back. Today, I am speaking with Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis. We are discussing the major points from their new book called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. And before the break, we discussed demanding our school boards to change our diesel-burning school bus fleets in our towns into electric ones. And that's just one example. And I wanted to give that example for the moms listening who are concerned, but they don't know what to do. That's just one thing to do. Justin, I'll give this question to you. There's so much to be done. There are so many action steps that need to be taken to meet our climate goals by 2050. How can we decide which ones will give the biggest bang for the buck? How do we choose which ones to pursue and which ones to just let slide?
1: wheel spinning out there of people doing things that are not going to make much difference. I frankly, you mentioned this earlier, I frankly think towns declaring climate emergencies doesn't make much difference. Tons of American towns have done that. And then they follow up that declaration by doing absolutely nothing to actually reduce their carbon emissions in their town. I would say for an individual person, this question, the best approach to this question is figure out what you would be best at, right? Figure out what you're good at. If you're a mom who's worried about the health of her kids, by the way, we have an example, a dramatic example in a book of mothers in Colorado who were motivated by exactly that concern. And, you know, who went, who learned about and went down to the Public Utilities Commission in Colorado and with their babies on their hip and lobbied them to adopt a clean air plan. And and that worked. And so this is perfectly fine. I mean, And if a mother has an overlapping concern between the climate problem, which is the, the future planet this child is going to have to live on, and the immediate health concern, diesel buses cause asthma in children, then that's the problem she should work on you know, somebody with a kind of tinkerer's bent, a guy with a little engineering background or just an interest in it, maybe what he wants to work on is the heat pump thing and getting the house fixed up and so that it's not wasting so much energy, right? People should do what they're good at and what they're naturally interested in and understand this is a long struggle. It's a collective struggle. We're not going to win it overnight. And we're we're just in it together. We need specialization and differentiation in the aspects of this problem that people work on. What you can't do is let yourself feel so overwhelmed, you become paralyzed about it and feeling like there's nothing you can do. That is false. That is to let the problem win. It's to let the incumbent interests win. We, we all need to understand that we do have a political voice and we need to use it. And how you vote is step one, but it's not the end. It's the beginning. Yeah. Let me just add a bit to what Justin
2: says. Justin argue to do an inventory of your own skills, aptitudes, friendships, connections, appetites to help build a strategy that's going to be effective because of who you are and it has the ethical truth to it as well, because you've done things in your own community. But the point is choose one of these things and hit it really hard because that's what that's how scale happens. And this is all about scale. And the difference between the green consumer which is the one house And the green citizen, which is your community, your state, even federal policy, is the difference between small scale and large scale, the difference between nominal impact and serious impact. They go together, and I'm not running down doing the local work or the homework, but use what you've learned there. Use what you've learned intellectually, ethically, and emotionally, and dispatch it in a bigger forum. And it is incredibly gratifying. Don't think of it as a burden, but think of it as a huge opportunity. And bring bring along some friends. So look for things with zeros behind them lots of zeros scale matters
0: Scale does matter and What I hear you both saying is find one thing, I believe you said Hal, and hit it hard, which means let things pass you by because you can't do everything well. You can do one thing really well, but you can't do everything well. And so choose your thing, whether it be school buses, whether it be updated building codes, whatever it is, choose one thing and hit it hard. I do, before we say goodbye, however, want to talk about voting. And I want to talk about state and countrywide elections. The problem I find, and I'm going to get so much slack for this question, talking about politics. You never talk about politics. My mom told me that, but we're going to do it. The problem that I find is that in a two-party system, If you vote for one thing, you're also then voting for or against a lot of other things. So if you're voting for the climate in a two-party system, in this two-party system, you're also voting in a certain way for, I don't know, immigrant rights, women's rights, gun rights, the increase or decrease of taxes, I know because a lot of listeners write to me about this all the time, that they're all for voting pro-environment, but they're not interested in voting the same way on the same ticket for all those other, to them, important questions, those important aspects. Do either of you have anything to say about any of that?
1: Look, we need nothing more than Republican voters out there to get their fingers around the necks of their political party and get it into the right place on this particular issue. Right. You know, I mean... Around the world, every other conservative political party has essentially come to embrace the need for change on climate. In Britain, there's a very strong cross-party consensus, and Britain has passed a very strong law on climate. The United States is unique in having a conservative party that thinks it's okay to trash the planet. If you don't agree with the position of your political party, whichever one it is, parties respond to the demands of their audience and their voters, right? And the Democratic Party has changed significantly on this issue. The Democrats used to really want to ignore it, right? They wanted to take green voters for granted. They were operating out, you know, sort of the first law of politics, just talking about this, get you any more votes. And their assumption was talking about green stuff didn't get anybody they didn't already have. And so we went through many presidential elections where I was tearing out what little hair I have and seeing candidates not talk about this problem. That has now changed, but it only changed in the 2020 cycle, right? It only changed with Biden's election where we finally had a presidential election. That was very substantially about climate. We need to have a presidential election where the Republican and the Democrat are competing to see who can do the most intelligent policy on climate. I would say to your listeners, look, we share this concern. We share the concern about how our politics have become so polarized that if you buy into one party's position, you may be writing off things you agree with or writing off the hope of some kind of consensus we're all frustrated, right? And the answer for that is not for people to engage in politics less, though, I don't think. I think the answer is for the citizenry to engage more.
2: A couple simple steps can help cause this to happen. Don't just vote. Write a letter. Sit down and take 30 minutes and write a letter and say, Dear Senator so-and-so or dear councilman, I would vote for you, but I'm distressed at your position on climate change. And if you're going to tolerate this sustained and permanent destruction of our earth, I can't vote for you anymore. And it makes me sad because I care about all these other issues the same way you do. Or the other way around. This is the last time I'm voting for you unless I hear you on the stump on climate change. Write that letter, put a stamp on it, get it to them. It's an old-fashioned move, but it works. You've just increased the power of your vote tenfold with that. It will help the system and it'll also help with your mental ease as you think about making what sort of compromises you're willing to make and which ones you're not.
0: Yeah. Put that angst and frustration into a well-written letter. My grandmother used to write letters to every corporation, every company who didn't live up to her standards. And so I think it's the same, right? You have a qualm, you put it in an old-fashioned letter. I love that. Hal and Justin, I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show. I am reinvigorated, thanks to our conversation, to go back into the world outside of my home and push for change. So thank you both so much. Yes. you. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 330. I must say that as I was talking to Justin and Hal, I felt so unbelievably motivated to take my efforts and move them into my community. We talked significantly on the episode about getting our school boards to switch over to electric buses, electric school buses. And I thought to myself, why don't we work on this together as a community? A lot of things that need to be done, research, the one-pager that Justin mentioned, all of these we can do together and then bring them into our own respective school boards, right, school board meetings. So for anybody who's listening, has young kids, they want to take their efforts into their community don't know where to start don't want to go at it don't want to go at it alone why don't we go at it together so here's what i'm looking for i'm looking for people who are interested and are ready to make 2023 their year to do something big in their communities we're going to tackle school buses just because That's what we talked about on today's episode. If you have another idea, something you want to do, perhaps it's getting bike lanes made in your town. Perhaps it's updating building codes in your town. Those are other high impact with zeros behind them actions that we discussed in the show. If you want to do anything, but specifically if you want to do school buses with me, I want you to send me an email. The email's in the show notes. I'm going to start a group and we're going to work on it together in 2023. We're going to hopefully get this done in a number of towns to hopefully tack even more zeros onto our effort. So if you want to join us, if you're ready, email me. Email's in the show notes. Just a quick, hey, I'm in. We'll do it. I'll compile a mailing list, and we'll get the ball rolling just in time for January. We'll be back on Thursday with another episode. I will see you then, and take care.